Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, we're back um, for episode 50-something of, uh, of um, Gov Actually, and I've uh, got a great and exciting guest. But before we dive in, I think it's really important for us to uh, recognize and acknowledge uh, some tragic events that have taken place since we last got together. And, and I think it's on everyone's mind, if you're listening to this contemporaneously, the the two big mass shooting incidents that we had in Buffalo and, and now in Texas, uh, the tragedy of another school shooting. Um, and you know, there, there could be a whole episode that we could do on this. Um, and the simple fact is we did. Um, it's episode 33. It was, it was a, a couple years back where we try in the Gov Actually way to talk about the systems, the process, and the structure of having a conversation around something as controversial as, as gun control. And we try to do it in a way that tries to avoid staking out too strong a position, although I think we both have a view that um, some form of uh, common sense gun control uh, gun regulation makes, makes sense. I mean, I don't know how much more evidence we need. Um, and that might that might be pushing the envelope on our nonpartisan approach to this conversation, but I think it's, um, I'm going to go back and listen. Um, I, I think it's worth thinking about these issues that, you know, the reason why we have the system and the structure we have is so that we can respond and evolve as society changes. And I think it's, it's high time for us to respond and evolve in this issue. Um, I also think we all need to take a moment to think about uh, those people who lost loved ones, who lost children, those lives cut short, the, the opportunities they could have represented, um, and, and just the, the pain um, that it causes to think of, of a loss of that magnitude. Um, but I think, you know, we were, we were talking a little earlier that, um, you know, it's hard for us to add another dollop of loss and pain um, to our overflowing cup of, of loss and pain in the context of what we've gone through as a country, as a society, as a world with COVID and with, you know, the various, um, you know, shocking uh, international circumstances such as the, the war in Ukraine. And, and I can understand why, why, why it's a, a lot for people to process and then a bit overwhelming. Um, our conversation today is is really kind of about a downstream effect of that. We have Maura Brophy, who is the director of the um, NOMA uh, North of Massachusetts Avenue Neighborhood Business Improvement District. She's the president and CEO of the bid. She oversees all activities of the bid and is responsible for executing the organization's strategic mission. And she comes from a long career in housing, transportation, um, has a unique appreciation for the value, the value of coalition building, work both in community and business-driven organizations. And in this job now, she's confronting this big challenge of you know, being responsible for kind of setting the tone and strategy for a whole neighborhood, a whole area of Washington, DC that is very, very reliant on office tenants, particularly federal office tenants, and we know as we kind of come into whatever phase we are in COVID now, that big, big questions around the way we use office space, the way we come together in the workplace, the way we, the way we work as a society. And in this instance that, that we're interested in and the way the federal government, the largest single operation in, in the country works, that's all there's all at least a question mark next to it. There's certainly huge amounts of changes and current implications. So um, I know that was a long journey through, <laughs> through recent tragedy to this um, um, classically of actually geeky conversation, but, but hopefully um, we can make that transition over to that topic. 
um, and do it in a way that's also mindful and respectful of the time we're in. Yeah, thank you, Dan. First, for recognizing the the uh, the, the tragedy, um, and uh, you know, I, I did go back and listen to that episode, um, and uh, you know, it's it's really about the role of government, uh, and we talk about how government regulates safety, uh, safety of kitchen appliances, safety of roads. You know, I was recent. This wasn't a government regulation, but I was recently at a at a Washington Nationals game, and I was reflecting on the nets that are now in place from home plate down the first baseline. And do they obstruct my view a little bit? Yeah, but, uh, but, but I think a kid was hurt by a baseball uh, and uh, that was coming too fast into the stands and, uh, and every major league team went and put these nets up. And um, it's, it's not an unusual thing to have a, uh, an adjustment to our experience, our convenience uh, for public safety. And we talk a lot about that and try to kind of grapple what the, what the, what the other, other argument for, for not regulating this is. And, um, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's a very gov actually conversation, but it doesn't take away the emotional elements of, um, uh, in any way, shape or form, this, this massive tragedy, but, you know, going to the topic and, and having Maura on, so we'll shift to that. And then I'll, I'll throw the first question out there, Maura, which is just like, just starting with, you know, you hear anecdotally, I don't know that, that there are hard numbers, maybe you're aware, that our office buildings are sitting mostly empty. Um, uh, here we are uh, in 2020, uh, 20, summer of 2022, or more than two years into the pandemic. Pan, you know, a lot, for a lot of people, there's no more mask mandate. Um, you know, the vaccines are out there. Um, yet, uh, yet the mass telework that we saw and the massive reduction in foot traffic into our center cities uh, and our and our commercial districts is still way down. Is that true? Are we are we still, from your vantage point, seeing? I want to just start with: Are our office buildings mostly empty? Yeah, I, I really appreciate the question, Danny and Danny and Dan. I appreciate the chance to sit down and have this conversation with you. Um, you know, Dan mentioned a, a few words about my background, but when I entered the urban planning world, I, all I could articulate at the time in terms of what I wanted to do with my career was that I wanted to work on the future of cities. And I can't think of a more fascinating and complicated and challenging time to be doing that um, than the moment that we're in, given all of the unknowns that we're facing with respect to the the questions about what our cities will look like as we come out of the pandemic and how, how the pandemic has forever changed the ways in which we engage with the urban landscape and what the urban landscape does for us. Um, <clears throat> so I, I run the Noma Business Improvement District and for the benefit of the audience, Noma is a neighborhood in Northeast DC. The bid is a 35 block area that stretches north of Massachusetts Avenue, roughly bound by uh, Massachusetts and Florida Avenue Northeast um, were essentially 35 blocks just north of Union Station. Um, I'll, I'll say a little bit about the neighborhood's history in a, a few minutes, but um, what we're seeing in Noma, and, and I, I came to this role in the spring of 2021, so about a year and change into the pandemic, and I immediately began to observe ways in which this neighborhood was affected by the pandemic, but also ways in which this neighborhood was unique compared to others when it came to the way the pandemic was affecting it. So Noma um, has an interesting history and I'll, I'll say a few words on this because I do think that it's relevant when it comes to the role of government, not only in uh, neighborhood activity, but also in the ways in which government and government investment can really uh, shape communities. Um, one of my favorite parts of Noma's history is that it is and was an economic recovery strategy. When the city was in financial disrepair in the 90s, um, a task force was convened to come up with a set of ideas to address the city's financial situation and to come up with a series of um, key tactics that could help the city recover. There were 40 things that this task force uh, identified as things that could be meaningful for the city's recovery. And number 26 on that list read something along the lines of 
turn Noma into a technology, media, arts, and residential community. And that has happened. And it didn't happen just because it was written, right? It was a series of uh, related, very smart public investment that led to what the neighborhood has become. And it was three things that led to the development that we've seen in the neighborhood. It was a temporary tax abatement. It was the upzoning of the neighborhood. But importantly, it was also the investment in an infill metro station uh, between Union Station and Rhode Island Avenue. So the, a new metro station was built between two existing stations, and that has spurred a tremendous amount of development. To put some numbers What's to up this. Zoning? What's upzoning? Upzoning um, allowed for the neighborhood, which had been uh, rail adjacent, largely industrial, lots of large lots, empty space, um, to be developed uh, into dense mixed use development and, and uh, office right. building, residential okay. building. Um, and so that change allowed for that new development to, to come to the neighborhood. Um, what's fascinating and what, one of the things I love about <clears throat> the, the story here is that the Metro station cost about $100 million to build. And the cost of that was shared by the local government and federal government. So for DC's roughly $50 million investment, uh, it's estimated that the related activity, all the development has yielded 1.25 billion in local tax revenue to the city. And by 2026, that number is expected to reach 2.6 billion. So that's a pretty good ROI uh, for the district, um, but also an example. And, and the reason that I often tell this story and find myself telling the story now is that it's an example of how very smart place-based investments can be very meaningful economic recovery strategies. So um, Danny, to your initial question about office space, uh, the, the, the evolution of that story is, you know, the Metro was built and the neighborhood started to develop. And it was very much understood and it assumed in the early years that this neighborhood was going to become a hub for government office buildings. And that is very much the way the neighborhood uh, grew in the early days. We are home to, um, in pre-pandemic, we had about 50,000 workers coming to the neighborhood. And of that, um, roughly split between public and private sector, of the public sector workers, it was roughly split between local and federal workers. We're home to the Bureau of Alcohol, uh, Tobacco and Firearms. We are home to the Security and Exchange Commission. We're home to the DOJ, Department of Justice. Um, we have very, a very strong base of federal tenants um, who have offices here. A lot of local government agencies have offices here. Um, and that has meant that our office vacancy rate has remained in the single digits despite the effects of the pandemic. And that means that Noma is outperforming every other submarket in DC when it comes to the way the, the office market and the vacancy rate. Um, to give you a sense of what that looks like in our central business district, uh, I think that downtown is now reporting uh, office vacancy uh, in excess of 20%. Um, so it really does stand in stark contrast. And to your point about cranes, Danny, we are still seeing a significant amount of development in the neighborhood. That said, um, the, the market, the development market uh, shifted um, somewhere along the line from thinking that this was gonna be a, a pretty um, solely have a office heavy market to one that is now mixed use. So the pipeline that we have uh, anything planned or under construction is all residential or hotel with the notable exception of the SEC relocating its headquarters from the south end of Noma to the north end of Noma. Um, so we have like, a- um, You know, I, you, you drive around Washington DC, there's a lot of cranes, right? The, the thing about Washington is there's, um, and has been for a while, the sense that they're kind of these new neighborhoods, the wharf, Buzzards Point, even Navy Yard, if, if, yeah, Half Street, right? And so you've got like these areas that are targeted for big development. 
And in that situation, as you were saying, in a, in a post-pandemic world, where, the, where you get the sense that people are gathering in cities more for residential recreation culture versus work, maybe, um, that, that, that the type of building you're gonna see at Buzzards Point and in these various areas where they're starting you know, with, a, with an empty lot are restaurants and theaters and, and less, some, but less office building than maybe if you were planning this in 2018 and 2019. It raises the question to me, what about all the empty office buildings that we have in established parts of the city or, or looking at Manhattan as a city and all the, the acres and acres and acres of office buildings, are those gonna stay uh, uh, underutilized for for generations to come? Are they? Is it, is, can they be repurposed? Like, how should we think about the the amount of commercial office space that we built in this country in a world in which we shift the baseline of use by 20, 30, 40 percent potentially? Yeah. So part of my elevator pitch for neighborhoods like Noma is that these neighborhoods that have a healthy mix of uses between office, residential, hotel, retail, these will be the post-pandemic neighborhoods of choice. Um, we're already seeing that with, um, you know, the, the few major office leases that we're seeing signed in the city are in neighborhoods that do have that mixture of uses. Um, when it comes to retail, retailers are looking for the confidence that people will be walking through the door. And so whether someone's working in a neighborhood because they're there working in an office or they're there working from home, to the extent that there are people in neighborhoods who can visit businesses, that is gonna be an attractive force for anyone who's looking to um, <clears throat> identify a new location for uh, a retail business as well. I'm not a person who thinks that downtown doesn't come back. I do think that downtown comes back. And I think it takes, 10 or 15 years. And I think it takes the type of very smart public investments, like I mentioned earlier, that have helped neighborhoods like Noma transform. Um, I think that there's a lot of discussion that's happening around the office stock that we have that is sitting vacant and repurposing those buildings to become residential buildings, to diversify the uses in traditional downtowns. I think that a lot of good work is being done in that area. The more I learn about it, I also understand that it's very difficult uh, to do those types of conversions. And it's tied in everything from building valuation and the transaction of the matter to the, the physical plant, right? The floor plates are difficult to work with in many cases. And it's not an easily replicable process. Uh, I've heard it said that if you do one office conversion, you've done one office conversion. Um, but I think that it's it's ideas like that and creative approaches that are going to, um, you know, be what's necessary to really help rethink our traditional downtowns. And it's challenging, but I also think that it's exciting that that is something that we get to think about. Um, but I, I think that we haven't fully figured out the answer, right? And I think that there are still questions about whether uh, the how long and at what pace and in what ways we're going to be able to rethink those markets or submarkets that are so heavily reliant on those office buildings. So um, Maura, my, my mom used to say, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. And, and you wish for working on the future of cities. And now, now you've got it. I don't know if we've had as much of a inflection point in the last two decades. You know, it was the rise of the cities. And now it's this new question of repositioning cities. It feels a little bit like the conversion from steam to electricity in the, at the turn of the well, uh, eight, 19th to 20th century. And that, that, took, that took decades and it wiped out huge investments and it, it, it meant physically changing the way these giant commercial enterprises worked. To your point, office to resi conversion sounds great right but you know the buildings office buildings are much deeper they have thicker core you know there are all kinds of things that make it very very challenging to do the plumbing alone is uh, a huge challenge so the the question then is it seems like so many 
of the fundamentals that have driven the kind of investment that created a NOMA are being shaken up. I mean, NOMA happened because the New York Avenue Metro station, which actually was one of my first projects as DDOT director, got built. Um, and uh, now the idea that a Metro might actually generate that kind of traffic is, is being challenged as, as you know, um, COVID has challenged, you know, the ridership of our metros. Um, the Danny's point about, well, what share of people are actually gonna go into the office? So how much square footage do you need? Maybe you're shifting from commercial office space to residential, but the math and the economics are vastly different between office and residential. I know Mayor Williams early on in his tenure in the late 90s, early 2000s, tried to bring residential to downtown. The first residential building was built in downtown in the late 90s, the, the first one in 50 years. Um, how, how do you feel, you know, do you feel people are, are just kind of hoping, kind of like the, the, the coyote running off the cliff and hoping <laughs> that the momentum gets them to the other cliff? Or, or do you think that there really is um, a lot of work and effort happening around saying, okay, we really got to rethink these models? Um. I think it might be a combination of both. I mean, I think that um, cities have been through many cycles of downturns and resurgences. I think that cities have continued to prove themselves as valuable in people's lives for many different reasons, right? This isn't the first time that we've had these big questions about the future of cities and what cities are going to look like and the way they're gonna serve us. Um, I think that the challenges are unique to this moment, but I think that the experience of the past has proven that cities do figure out a way to come back. Um, I think that when it comes to big questions about the value of transit and the future of ridership and the critical mass that's needed for that to be successful, I think that one thing that we know about cities is that, is that they thrive and, and need density in order to uh, to work. And I think that mass transit is critical to enabling that. So I think that, you know, we can't, we cannot, it's, it's impossible to decouple the importance of mass transit and the functioning of cities. Um, and I think that what we're, a lot of the, the conversations that we're having now are how do we remind people about the value of being in cities and coming downtown and doing things um, in places <clears throat> like uh, downtown or Capital One Arena or a uh, music venue, reminding them of all the things that cities offer that they can't get by just sitting at home and working in their living room or, you know, staying on their cul-de-sac. And there are countless examples of things that you only, only experience in cities. And it's not just the, the ball game that you come into town because you have a ticket and you plan to go. To me, it's all of the unexpected things that you encounter in a city throughout the course of your day. All of the small moments, the chance encounters with people in the street, the stumbling upon uh, uh, music performance on your way home from the grocery store, you know, those little things that are just unexpected in such wonderful parts of cities. Um, and those are things that you, you, I just don't think happen without that, um, that critical mass of people and activity and that vibrancy. And I think it's just a matter of reminding people who used to spend a lot of time in cities and who used to come downtown for work or other reasons um, of why they like to do that. And I think it's there, like I said, there are countless examples of what makes these cities so special. Well, you have two partisans. In fact, Danny just moved back into the city. So, uh, so that's, a, that, that's evidence that, uh, that, that at least in this instance, um, there's a strong belief in what you just said about the value of, of the social interaction that comes with the city. But the economics of, of making that place work and the, and the shape and the, and the structure of it, that is, that, is, that is under threat and is probably going to change. Um, why don't we take a minute of a break and when we come back, let's start bringing it together and saying, how does federal policy and how does federal investment actually play a role in that? And do you think the federal government has really recognized that, or are they kind of the coyote and the cliff right, right now as well? Have they, have they realized that the world has changed? So we're going to take a quick break, 
um, and then we'll come back and we'll we'll talk we'll we'll try to tie those strings together. Gov actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, Danny, we're back. Maura had to leave to go and uh, uh, and work on the um, on the future of cities. For she had to reposition six buildings. And no, I'm kidding around. Um, but we're back, and and I think where I'd like to do is pick up kind of where this whole the whole creation of Noma started. It was a confluence of the city, the private sector, and the federal government making targeted investments around a strategy. Um, how does that happen now as it's possible, you know, the, the various different factors that, that create an outcome like ANOMA have dramatically changed? And, and I like, Maura used the word place-based. And so it's kind of like, it's a strategy for a neighborhood, which, um, which is kind of an interesting, uh, way of kind of thinking about city development going forward through the lens of, of neighborhoods mm-hmm. versus broader, because maybe in the post-pandemic world, we are, we're not commuting across cities or we're kind of like living in, in, in these bustling neighborhoods where everything you need is in that neighborhood. Yeah, so I mentioned that Noma's office market is performing very well. And I attribute that to our base of very strong federal office tenants. So if you're an owner of one of those buildings uh, and you have one of those tenants and your office space is occupied, you're happy and I'm happy, right? That is a very good thing. It's, it's important for a number of reasons. And that said, is someone who also thinks about the neighborhood, not just in terms of the way it's performing numerically, but also in terms of the experience in the neighborhood day to day, just because those office leases are signed and that office space is occupied doesn't necessarily mean that there are people in those offices. And that is important as someone who cares about the experience in this neighborhood day to day, the vibrancy of this neighborhood, the viability of the retail businesses that do rely on people coming to work or living in the residential buildings. And what we're seeing is while our office vacancy is still in the single digits, our pedestrian counts, which monitor levels of activity day-to-day in the neighborhood are still still shy of 50% of where we had been pre-pandemic. When I'm out and about in the neighborhood, I am constantly assessing levels of activity. I look at, I, I ask myself how crowded is this bus or Metro train? How long is this lunch line? And I am seeing um, through that, imperfect uh, uh, methodology that I'm applying, I am seeing a steady return in activity in the neighborhood. But it's when it when I look at those numbers that our pedestrian count shows us, it's still the trend is is looking good. That that line is trending in the right direction, but it's still not quite where we need it to be. Um, so I, I talked to the General Service Administration. I, I asked different agencies, you know, what are your plans for the return? Um, And I'm hearing a couple of things pretty consistently. So one, agencies are, are, every agency is coming up with its own plan and there doesn't seem to be a a kind of central uh, policy that is overarching across different agencies for all federal government workers. Um, And also what we're hearing is that for the most part, what is being required um, is for federal workers to be in the office one pay one day of pay period, which could be one day every two weeks. So it's certainly more than we were seeing initially when there was no requirement for in-person work. But I think that given what we know about DC and its reliance on the federal government and the federal workforce, um, it's a real risk and real threat to the city's economy if the workforce is not returning uh, the critical mass that we need it to. Um, So that said, I do think that there is an opportunity here because there is um, 
DC is it benefits from the fact that it has uh, the federal workforce, and there is some uh, level of kind of centralized potential decision making authority, right? Um, I think that DC uh, really hopes to see that federal workforce return as much as we do other parts of the workforce. Um, and I think it's yet to be determined what that looks like, but that will be a, a deciding and determining factor as to what our recovery looks like as well. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to talk about, I love this idea of uh, neighborhood, um, you know, uh, as kind of like the, the future city is built around multi-use, multi-purpose neighborhoods where, you know, office space is right size to a reality of, of, of mixed telework and in-person and, um, and we're creating uh, opportunities to, to for people to to get together around a variety of different things: cultural, recreation, sports, and um, and uh, and and work. I'm jealous of uh, of 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 London and the the Premier League soccer, where they all have these like soccer stadiums and these soccer teams in these neighborhoods, and it just feels like there's a lot of community that develops around that. Um, what is um, one of the things I wanted to talk about because we we've been touching on it is is mass transit. You mentioned the um, opening up the 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 Noma uh, metro stop was the was the made was 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 probably the major unlock. Um, but these transit systems, I, I think, you know, as much as you know, we talked about this kind of lurking potential economic issue of commercial real estate and empty buildings and what does that all mean and should we be worried about it from an economic standpoint you know i think more viscerally is the solvency of mass transit and uh and if you don't have the volume you um uh do you need to change your business model your economic model for how you finance and how you think about it? and i was chatting with, uh, with someone uh, very much involved in transit systems, uh, in the DC transit system. And they were saying like, you know, it, it, it used to be, you know, that, that, you know, our train cars were full and we didn't have an, you know, uh, on Tuesday morning at, at 8 a.m. Uh, and now they're not, but we don't have enough trains after a Washington Capitals game, you know? And it's just like, so, so we have to kind of rethink the train schedules a bit around uh, human uh, behavior and, and how we're what what the traffic is, and then how we finance it. And this person kind of blew my mind. They said, "Imagine, imagine a world in which instead of buying a a, pa a pass for DC, you buy a pass that works in any city in America, in any transit system, any bus." And I said, "Well, that would be cool." And he said, and then imagine a world in which when you sign on for your Disney Plus account for an extra dollar, you get uh, a transit pass that gets you, you know, your first 15 hours uh, free in any city in America. Would you pay that extra dollar? And I said, absolutely, I would. Um, and so it's just like coming back to these kind of what are the creative things we need to do to kind of move where the hockey puck is going in terms of the way people are acting and behaving and these kind of next generation approaches to work and life. Um, and, you know, it's going to take uh, policymakers to be to be creative. Uh, otherwise, we're going to lose out on these opportunities. So I just want to ask if you had, had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that we just need to fundamentally give ourselves permission to think completely outside the box and to consider the reality that things are not the way they used to be. Um, I think that transit's a good example. You know, transit for both our metro and bus systems um, have been uh, set up to assume that people are going to travel to the office at nine and come home at five and the service is set up to accommodate that. Um, I think that we should look at when people are traveling and what the needs are for both rail and for bus and to think about designing systems that work uh, around those changes in behavior. Um, I think that there are a lot of opportunities to rethink all the way that that works and, and 
the current moment gives us a chance to do that. What's funny, I think this, this conversation actually starts bleeding into a bigger discussion about how our how are cities, you know, designed and how, how do we get where we are? The, the city of neighborhoods that you were describing, Danny, was the city that was here, you know, for centuries. Um, that was what cities were. And that's how they worked is by bringing people together, doing work and living and, and, and you know, and so it was actually transportation efficient, you know, as people were right on top of each other. Um, you know, the principle that actually began to split up those uses and assign them to different geographies, um, it's called zoning. And frankly, zoning really exists as a structure for only about 100 years. Uh, it was a Supreme Court case in 1926 that kind of established the right of jurisdictions to tell private property owners what they could or couldn't do on their particular piece of private property. Um, and the transit system we have in DC was really built as, as Maura said, around this principle based on the zoning of DC and the, and the zoning of the surrounding areas, which conceived of it as more of a commuter rail than as a subway. You go to New York and it's very much a um, you know, move around the, the city at all times at any time. Um, uh, kind of system versus DC, which was always a radial in and out um, structure. And so in that sense, we have to we have to make massive reinvestments in the form of the infrastructure we have if we are if we're going to shift away from this very much uh, zoned kind of use structure if if people are going to stay at home more or or live within these these compact neighborhoods. And um, I, I, I'm curious how that is playing out in a very, um, very thoughtfully and carefully invested and designed community like Anoma, which is actually, you know, kind of the highest and best expression of this kind of thoughtful kind of targeted investment combination of federal resources and, and, and private investment. How does that evolve over time? Yeah, so one of the things that we do when we try to <clears throat> understand the neighborhood better and do things like um, our strategic planning is we talk to a lot of people about why they like NOMA, why they live here, why they've chosen to have their office here, why they like to come to work here. And what we've heard pretty uniformly is that neighborhood NOMA is incredibly accessible. Um, we're, we're located, as I mentioned, um, immediately adjacent to Washington's Union Station which is a hub for inner city travel, also commuter travel. Um, we have a, our a mobility score of 100, a walk score of 96, a bike score of 99, and a transit score of 84. Um, so the, all of that- a little bit about what those scores are? Yeah, so I think that in, in summary, that means that we, it is easy to get to this neighborhood and it's easy to get around in this neighborhood. And that is the case whether you're traveling on foot, on bike, on transit, in a car. Um, and that's important because I think that that means it's easy for you to get here for me to come to work here. It's easy for you to get out of the neighborhood for me to go to work somewhere else. It's easy for you to get around to run your errands, to get your groceries, to go to a restaurant. And I think that that is another thing that has really served the neighborhood well during the pandemic. It's, it's the ability to get to Noma or to get anywhere from NOMA is not an impediment to your willingness or your want to be here. Um, and I think that that is important as we think about different neighborhoods and uh, positioning neighborhoods to be post-pandemic neighborhoods of choice. I think that we need to recognize that not only is the post-pandemic neighborhood of choice one that is mixed use in terms of the physical plant of the building, the, the physical landscape, but also um, mixed use in terms of the ways in which people are able to traverse in and between different neighborhoods, right? I think that no, uh, no healthy, thriving, vibrant neighborhood uh, coming out of this pandemic is going to be one that you can only access by car or only access by one of these modes. I think that it's well understood that all of these modes need to be able to serve and coexist within our neighborhoods. Laura, what's your uh, what's your stand on uh, scooters? 
love them. Love any, I, my stand on urban mobility is that uh, we need all of the options that are available to us uh, to make our cities work efficiently. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, a few years ago uh, working very hard to secure dedicated funding for our metro system. And the case that I made to people about metro and the case that I can make to people about scooters and any other form of mobility is that whether you ride the system or the scooter or not, you want it to work. Because if it doesn't, it means that there is going to be more congestion on whatever mode you're traveling on, whether that's a metro or you know in a car lane. So having this mix of offerings um, is good for everyone because it better and most efficiently allocates trips throughout the system. Dan, I wanna do a, a whole podcast on scooters. Um, I know who you should have on that podcast. <laughs> oh, really? I Tell me. I mean, like, I remember, does, is this like a, maybe I'm making this memory up. I remember there was like this thing where this guy was like going to invent the next big thing. And we were all waited and it was the same. And it was the Segway, right? Yeah. And yeah. we were like, oh, and it was like, it landed with a bit of a thud. But now, like, as I drive around DC and other cities and see people bouncing around the town in scooters. I'm like, it just took, I don't know, 20 years, but this guy's vision came true, sort of. And one, and one of the biggest manufacturers of those scooters is in fact Segway. Um, so he just put the, the wheels next to each other and made a very, very complicated balancing device. He should have just put them one in front of the other and, and let people balance themselves because they're really good at it. Um, yeah, that is a whole other Boy, that if we're gonna generate kind of reactions from listeners, do a thing on scooters because uh, that's that's a pure binary. People either love them or hate them. Yeah, I'm fascinated, and it, you know, it's like we haven't talked more about climate and um, how do you like is that front and center in 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 your conversations or? Is that, you know, where does that fit on the list of things that that factor into decisions when you're planning a, a neighborhood like this? Yeah, I think that that's, it, it's part and parcel to the conversations that we're having. And <clears throat> I mentioned that no thriving post-pandemic neighborhood will be able to be solely served by cars, nor should it, right? We know that we have a tremendous responsibility to address the climate issues that we know are apparent and to you know, tie this back to the macro level uh, state of affairs that Dan was mentioning at the outset here. Climate is one that just is, uh, pervades, it should be a part of every conversation that we're having when it comes to planning for the future. And I think it's directly tied to issues of urban development and urban mobility. Um, not only uh, do thriving, vibrant neighborhoods rely on these different modes for people to get around, but I think that so too does the climate, right? We need to be thinking about uh, ways in which we can reduce the carbon footprint. And I think that urban mobility um, and all the emerging options gives us a tremendous opportunity. That isn't 60% of the emissions come from commercial real estate and transportation. And so we're so when you have this combination, when you talk about these neighborhoods and you talk about these efficient designs of people living closer to where they work, you're you're by nature having a conversation about those emissions mm -hmm. in a way you you almost don't have to have the conversation because by doing that work you're already you're already dealing with it. Exactly. Um, right. I want to do a, I do want to do a podcast on scooters. I love the debate. <laughs> Uh, all right, all right. I'm, I'm um, a fan uh but, but we are the last of actually podcast uh we'll scare yeah, away half our third, listeners it's a third rail issue dan is that what you're saying it's pretty yeah um uh yeah well it's it's one of them on the in the local transportation world i think Maura would agree um but um Maura, I think uh, when I was GSA administrator, we actually had our headquarters for a moment in in noma uh as we were rebuilding our building as we were rebuilding the building, we did a lot of work on understanding who was coming into the office and when. And, and I think Danny mentioned Tuesday afternoon is the, what the Metro person said, or Tuesday morning was when they needed the most trains. And we found that Tuesday was the highest day of attendance at the office. And even at its peak, our, our, our busiest day was something like 42% attendance. 
And the reason why was people were out doing what they needed to do. They're having meetings, they're going to places. They were um, already using, you know, the laptops we had distributed to everyone to work remotely. We had a very, very affirmative remote work policy. I'm wondering what we're seeing now is through COVID, you know, we, as we tried to explain this to other agencies and suggest that they freeze or shrink their footprint, um, there was a huge amount of hesitancy about letting people work from home. COVID changed that math. Do you feel like, you know, do you, do you have a guess of what you think the percentage might be at some point on the return to work? And do you think, you know, do you think the government should have a cross the board policy or, or should it be agency by agency? Yeah, so what I'm hearing for the most part these days is that most employers are working towards bringing people back <clears throat> three days a week. Um, I'm hearing very little discussion, if at all, among employers who are going for the full five. Um, I think that what I'm hearing is that employers are trying to allow for as much flexibility um, as they can. I think that employers acknowledge that uh, there are some benefits of being able to work, to work remotely. Um, and I think that we've learned just, just how we've learned that um, maybe 100% in-office work is not what the future will look like. I think that we've also learned that it's probable that 100% telework is probably not the answer either. Um, I think that Zoom has served us very well, right? I, I, I can't imagine what the effects of this pandemic would have been if we weren't able to all work remotely and to adapt as quickly as we did. Um, that said, I also think that we all understand that there are things that we're missing by only being able or being uh, is, uh, as working as remotely as we, we've been. Um, when I'm in in-person situations, I, I, can't help but notice all of the things that I witnessed that would just not happen on Zoom, right? The, the meetings before the meetings and the meetings after the meetings and the sidebar conversations that you happen that happen while you're coming and going. And I know that there's value there. It's hard to quantify it because it's hard to quantify something where there's the absence of that thing happening. But, you know, I, I loathe to think of all the people that I've not met in the past two years just because I haven't been out and had the chance to bump into them. Um, and I think that there are countless examples of things that are benefits of being in person and being among other people um, that will draw people back and will give people a reason to want to reconvene and gather. I think that there are open questions about what, what that looks like. You know, I think that we've heard that it's challenging for people to show up to an office and sit on Zoom all day like they would be at home. But where there are chances for in-person meetings and uh, collaboration, especially with external partners, that seems to be very appealing to folks. So I think that, you know, just like we were talking about earlier with this rethinking everything and rethinking the way things were working, um, I can imagine a situation where, uh, you know, dedicated seat work is something that people adapt to doing at home. And with when there are chances for meetings, we default or begin to <clears throat> work in a way where that's something that's done in person. Um, I think that we're still, it's still too early for us to have fully uh, processed or begun to imagine this new routine, but I, I could imagine that that's something that we're working towards. Yeah, there are, uh, you know, there's certainly there are jobs that are, uh, you know, kind of inelastic where you have to be there, right? Like, you know, emergency room workers uh, in DC, I think of people that work on national security and they have to be in SCIFs, special offices just to review the documents or go on the computer. But if you're, if you're more elastic and, and you have uh, flexibility, everything that I've looked at and read and, and, and talked to experts on is you do need some time to co-locate uh, to build the type of affiliation and culture. It might not be what it used to be, but, but, it, but, but absent it, you're not going to optimize your, your, your affiliation, your culture, employee engagement, which means we still need the infrastructure. Like we still need office space. We still need transit systems to get people, you know, we still need functioning uh, streets and roads, you know, so because if you're coming in a day a week, two days a week, three days a week, 
got to be coming somewhere. And so it, it may be a world in which we've calibrated to a new equilibrium in terms of foot traffic, but we still need uh, functioning cities to accommodate it, even if the schedules have changed. Um, and I think that's the, you know, that, that to me, that's my prediction of where we're going. Like you look at a, at a, at a, at a vision or a recording of New York city in 2018. And it's like, those buildings are completely full. You look at that same recording in 2028 and those buildings aren't as full, but they're still necessary um, as, as kind of work uh, changes. And uh, in, in you said it was gonna take 10 to 15 years that sounds about right to me to, for us to find our new, our new, uh, our new uh, working model. Um, and so it sounds like, and I know we're, we're up on time, it sounds like uh, the folks at NOMA have the right person uh, kind of thinking about these different scenarios and being adaptable and flexible to kind of figure out where we're going and land on the right equilibrium. And that's, uh, that's exciting. And I'm really excited about the fact that I live right near NOMA now, because it sounds like Sounds like we have a great neighborhood in uh, a walking distance from because Dan and I live in the same neighborhood uh, to uh, to walk to. So that's fun. It's the place to be. Yeah, I live on the south edge of Noma and I work on the north edge of Noma. And it was actually the transition from one to the other where I had the great pleasure of running into Maura, who actually does walk around the neighborhood, checking it out and 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 seeing. You know, I, I don't know if I went into her pedestrian count that day or not, but. Um, uh, that's how I, I asked her if she would be on the show. And I really do appreciate you joining us and giving us a lot to think about as, as we go into this, you know, this, this period of change and evolution and response to, to these kind of world changing impacts we've had through COVID. So thank you so much for being on here. Thanks everyone for listening. And Danny, thanks as always for, uh, for being a, a great collaborator on this fun, uh, these fun discussions. I will wave as I scooter by your house, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. Thank you, Maura. Okay.